0: This is Democracy Now!
1: We are witnessing the emergence of the People's Republic of China as a major player in global politics. Whether that's going to be for good or for ill, I don't know. Uh, but the notion that somehow the United States runs the show uh, has become obsolete.
0: Twenty years after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we speak to retired Colonel Andrew Basevich, a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy after 9-11. We'll talk about this week's meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in Moscow, the war in Ukraine, the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, where he lost his son, and more. Then we go to Sami Razuli a beloved Iraqi-American restaurateur in Minneapolis, who moved back to Iraq after the U.S. invasion and founded the Muslim Peacemaker Team. He's been a regular guest on Democracy Now! over the past two decades.
2: I see the war as pointless. It caused uh, lots of uh, agony and disastrous uh, uh, results uh, for the Iraqis.
0: All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Chinese President Xi Jinping wrapped up his visit to Moscow earlier today, signing over a dozen agreements on trade and other forms of cooperation with President Vladimir Putin, vowing to keep strengthening their ties. This is Xi speaking during his visit.
2: The political trust between our countries strengthens. The common interests multiply. And the nations are getting closer. The cooperation in trade, investment, energy, culture, humanitarian, and interregional areas is developing.
0: While Putin praised Beijing's Ukraine peace plan, no concrete steps were announced to end the war. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kushida made a surprise visit to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky, bringing geopolitical divisions and alliances into sharp relief. At a joint news conference, Zelensky said he would virtually join May's G7 summit in Japan and countered Beijing's peace plan with his own.
3: We suggested China in public as well as through diplomatic channels, our peace formula, and we invited them to participate in this formula. We invite China for dialogue and wait for a response.
0: A call is reportedly being planned between Zelensky and Xi. Overnight, Russia launched a new wave of missiles and drones into Ukraine, killing at least four people at a school dormitory near Kyiv. In the U.S., the Pentagon announced it will expedite the delivery of Abrams' tanks to Ukraine, aiming to send refurbished older versions of the armored vehicles by fall. A warning to our audience, this story contains images and descriptions of police violence. A Virginia grand jury has indicted 10 people, seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital workers for the murder of Ivo Okieno a 28-year-old black man who died on March 6 after being violently pinned down and piled on for more than 11 minutes by the deputies and medical staff at the Central State Hospital in Petersburg, Virginia. Video of the killing was released to the public this week shows hospital staff attempting in vain to administer CPR to Atano after his body went limp. He suffered from mental health challenges, was taken from his home and locked up three days earlier after a neighbor called police, when Ocheno walked onto their property and took some lights and started banging on their front door, they said. Ocheno's mother, Carolyn Uko. Who moved to Virginia with her family from Kenya in the 1990s said in a news conference Tuesday her son was a sensitive and caring man who was failed by multiple institutions.
2: With my team beside me, with my friends behind me, with my community behind me, with mothers and fathers who are fearful for what might happen to their children after seeing what happened to Ivo, with the young people who are going through mental distress, and the world behind me, we will achieve justice for Ivo Otieno.
0: Philadelphia has agreed to pay $9.25 million to over 340 protesters and residents who were subjected to excessive police force, including tear gas, pepper spray, and rubber bullets, over two days of demonstrations in 2020 following the police murder of George Floyd. The city will also award a half million dollars to the Bread and Roses Community Fund for a grant that supports grassroots groups in Philadelphia. As part of the historic settlement, the Philadelphia Police Department will also withdraw from the 1033 LISO program, which grants U.S. military equipment to local law enforcement agencies. This is plaintiff Ed Parker, who was detained and brutalized by police, resulting in three surgeries.
2: Hearing the choking, weeping, and people
0: calling out for their loved ones
2: was something else entirely. They made sure one of the first things they did was to rip off our masks and then subsequently stuff us on buses and in cells together. This was June of 2020 and the pandemic implications of which should not be underplayed. The absurdity of being the subject of police brutality during a protest against police brutality was not lost on us.
0: President Biden has designated two new national monuments Tuesday in Nevada and Texas, protecting over half a million acres of land from new development. Spirit Mountain, or Avikwame, in Nevada, is a sacred site for the Fort Mojave tribe and others. Indigenous and environmental advocates have been pushing for years to designate the area as a national monument. In Texas, Kastner Range, located at the Fort Bliss Army Base in El Paso, is an old firing range and was a training site until 1966. The area will need to be cleared of unexploded munitions before it can be enjoyed by the public for its native rock art and unique flora of yellow and orange poppies that bloom in the spring. Biden also committed to designating a new marine sanctuary in the Pacific southwest of Hawaii, which will protect nearly 800,000 square miles of islands, reefs and marine life. Meanwhile, a federal appeals court heard arguments Tuesday from indigenous advocates who are fighting to block the transfer of Oak Flat to Resolution Copper, which wants to turn the ancient site in eastern Arizona, sacred to the San Carlos Apache nation, into a massive copper mine. Resolution Copper is a joint venture of multinational mining corporations BHP and Rio Tinto. Leaders with Apache stronghold told the court the construction of the mine would violate their religious freedom and other rights. This is Sandra Rambler, a San Carlos Apache elder. If I want to go there and be able to pray there, I should have that right. And I don't want no foreign company to come in and tell me, no, you can't do that. We have the freedom of speech. We have the freedom of choice to write about whatever we want to write about. We have the freedom of religion. And this is our religion. This is who we are. This is us as Apaches. In Brazil, almost all illegal gold mining operations have been removed from Yanomami indigenous territory, as more miners are expected to be evicted from the Amazon region. The government of President Luis Inacio Lula de Silva launched a massive operation earlier this year in response to the humanitarian catastrophe faced by Yanomami communities, largely due to the disastrous effects of illegal gold mining, which have displaced people, devastated the land and food resources, and contaminated rivers with mercury. In Ecuador, a group of five journalists were targeted with bombs disguised as USB drives Monday. One of the reporters, Lenin Artiella, was wounded when the device exploded after he plugged it into his computer. The explosive devices were mailed in envelopes to news stations in Quito and Guayaquil. Ecuador's attorney general's office said Monday it had launched a terrorism probe into the attacks. Uganda's parliament has passed another sweeping bill criminalizing LGBTQ people, allowing for the death sentence in certain cases. The new law appears to be the first to outlaw even identifying as LGBTQ, carrying a penalty of up to 20 years in prison. It also targets HIV-positive people who engage in same-sex relations with the death penalty. Bans the so called promotion of homosexuality and declares all same sex conduct as non consensual. A U.S. Saudi citizen sentenced to 19 years in prison in Saudi Arabia over his tweets critical of the Saudi government has been released. 72 year old Saad Ibrahim al-Mahdi, was arrested in November 2021 after traveling from Florida to Riyadh to visit family. One of the tweets referenced slain Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. al family and rights groups are calling on the Saudi government to lift a travel ban imposed on al so he can return home to the United States. In reproductive rights news, the Minnesota House of Representatives passed a bill Monday that would shield patients who travel to the state for an abortion and their providers from legal repercussions. The Reproductive Freedom Defense Act would prevent state courts or officials from complying with extradition requests, arrests, or subpoenas as a result of an abortion that a person receives in Minnesota where the procedure is still legal. The bill now heads to the state Senate, which has a razor thin Democratic majority. Here in New York, a Manhattan grand jury is reconvening today and could vote on whether to indict former President Donald Trump over hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels during his 2016 presidential campaign. House Republicans are demanding testimony and documents from Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg calling an indictment against Trump, quote, an unprecedented abuse of prosecutorial authority. But legal experts say Congress does not have the constitutional authority to oversee local prosecutors, and the House lawmakers' demands violate New York's sovereignty. In more legal woes for Trump— a federal judge has ordered Trump attorney Evan Corcoran to testify before a federal grand jury as part of the special counsel probe into Trump's handling of classified documents. A Fox News producer filed two lawsuits this week accusing Fox lawyers of coercing and intimidating her into providing misleading testimony in the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox by Dominion Voting Systems. Abby Grossberg said Fox was attempting to shift blame on her and Fox business host Maria Bartiroma for the network's repeated promoting of Donald Trump's lies about election fraud and Dominion's role in helping rig the 2020 elections. She blamed the strategy on Fox's culture of misogyny and discrimination. A Swedish court said Greta Thunberg and 600 other climate activists can proceed with a class-action lawsuit against the Swedish government for failing to respond to the climate disaster. The climate group Aurora hopes to legally compel Sweden into slashing its emissions, citing its duty under the European Convention on Human Rights. And back here in the United States, senior climate activists with the Group Third Act demonstrated against fossil fuel backing banks around the country, cutting up their credit cards to Chase, Citi, Wells Fargo and Bank of America. This is Reverend Neil Christie at the Washington, D.C., protest.
3: Make sure the banks know that we care, that we're watching them. We're watching how they invest their money. Um, what's interesting is that the, the U.S. banks have chosen not to follow European banks in terms of divestment from, fo- from dirty energy, from fossil fuels. They know better, and they're making billions and billions of dollars off of uh, harming our planet.
0: You can see our interview with Third Act founder Bill McKibben and Sierra Club executive director Ben Jealous at democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back— Twenty years after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we'll speak with retired Colonel Andrew Bacevich, a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy after 9-11. We'll also speak with him about this week's meeting with Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in Moscow, the war in Ukraine, the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, and more. Second Baghdad by Iraqi-American oud musician and composer Rahim al-Haj. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Chinese President Xi Jinping has left Moscow, where he met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The two leaders declared a new era in Chinese-Russian relations. During a joint news conference, Putin said, quote, Russia-China relations are at the highest point in the history of our two countries, he said. Xi Jinping arrived in Moscow Monday, just three days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin, accusing him of committing war crimes in Ukraine. On Tuesday, Xi Jinping discussed China's 12-point peace proposal to end the war in Ukraine.
1: I 我想强调-
2: I would like to point out that in the Ukrainian settlement, we consistently follow the principles of the U.N.
1: Charter and stand on an objective and unbiased position. We do actively promote reconciliation and resumption of talks. Our stance is based on the very essence of the matter and on the truth. We are always for peace and dialogue. We are firmly standing on the true side of history.
0: Russian President Vladimir Putin said China's plan could be the basis to end the war.
1: Of course, we did
0: not ignore the
1: situation around Ukraine. We believe that many of the provisions of the peace plan put forward by China are consonant with Russian approaches and can be taken as the basis for a peaceful settlement, when they are ready for that in the West and in Kiev. However, so far, we see no such readiness from their side.
0: In recent weeks, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky expressed willingness to talk to Xi Jinping about China's peace plan. A senior Ukrainian official has told CNN that discussions are underway to organize a call between the two leaders, but nothing has been set yet. Zelensky spoke in Kyiv on Tuesday.
3: WE INVITED CHINA, BOTH PUBLICLY AS WELL AS THROUGH DIPLOMATIC CHANNELS, TO PARTICIPATE IN OUR PEACE FORMULA. WE INVITE CHINA FOR
1: DIALOGUE, AND WE WAIT FOR A RESPONSE.
0: MEANWHILE, IN WASHINGTON, D.C., NATIONAL SECURITY COUNCIL SPOKESPERSON JOHN Kirby DISMISSED CHINA'S ABILITY TO BE AN IMPARTIAL MEDIATOR BETWEEN RUSSIA AND UKRAINE. BUT I DON'T THINK YOU CAN REASONABLY LOOK. Uh, at, at China as impartial in any way. Um, they haven't condemned this uh, in uh, this invasion. Um, they haven't stopped buying Russian oil and Russian energy. Um, President Xi saw fit to fly all the way to Moscow. Hasn't talked once to President Zelensky. Hasn't visited Ukraine. To talk about the Russia-China summit the war in Ukraine, as well as the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we're joined by Andrew Basevich, chair of the board and co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, retired colonel, Vietnam War veteran. Basevich is professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University and author of several books, his latest on shedding an obsolete past, bidding farewell to the American century. Professor Basevich, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Um, There's a lot to talk about today, from what happened 20 years ago, the U.S. invasion to Iraq, to the Ukraine war. But let's begin in the present, this latest news of the Xi-Putin summit, the uh, Chinese peace plan that was offered, and Zelensky's response to it. Do you see a path right now? Start off by talking about the significance of the summit.
1: Well, first of all, you know we we should not take at face value anything uh, the the parties uh, say, w- whether we're talking about Russia, China, Ukraine, or the United States. I think what impresses me is the uh, evidence of Chinese diplomatic activism, and, and I say that also with reference to their role in bringing about the restoration of diplomatic relations between. Uh, Iran and and Saudi Arabia, uh, our diplomacy, uh, American diplomacy, strikes me as reactive and unimaginative and ineffective. Uh, but I think Chinese diplomacy uh, appears to be more imaginative and, and potentially more effective. What that says is, guess what? Uh, the world is changing in important and dramatic ways with regard to the distribution of power and influence uh, worldwide. Uh, And and this simply confirms, in a sense, what we've always known or uh, known for a long time, which is that, yes, indeed, China is emerging as a global superpower on a par with the United States of America.
0: Can you talk about the peace plan that they've offered? And while Zelensky is not accepting that, saying it would mean that Russia would stay um, within the occupied areas in Ukraine, um, in both uh, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and could allow them to invade at any future point, but just the fact that he is saying, I do want to talk with the president of China, um, and has presented his own peace plan, if you've analyzed that,
1: well, I haven't analyzed it in any great detail, but I, I, think, I think you're actually making the key point uh, that uh, Zelensky's willingness to, to talk, to hear out uh, China, uh, suggests an openness to China uh, serving as the intermediary, which will make some sort of deal possible. This, it's highly unlikely Uh, that there's going to be one side that wins and the other side that loses uh, in this conflict, even though uh, that appears to be the expectation of the Biden administration, you know, that uh, Ukraine will win, Russia will lose. Ain't going to happen. And so there has to be a compromise. And it it would appear to me uh, that Zelensky is signaling a willingness to compromise, whereas uh, the United States uh, is sticking to a very uh, hardball position.
0: So the U.S. is saying they can't trust China. But talk about why you think China and other countries would could be seminal in mediating a peace deal.
1: Well, I, I think the larger context here is one that uh, other commentators have recognized, and that is that uh, they're... The, the, the Ukraine-Russia uh, war uh, is, is a proxy conflict. Uh, it, it's a proxy conflict that is a subset of a larger competition between the West, led by the United States, even if our leadership was somewhat precarious, between the West and the People's Republic of China. Uh, and I, I, again, I think what we're seeing is uh, assertiveness, imagination, on the part of the People's Republic that has not met with anything comparable from the United States.
0: Andrew Bacevich, if you can talk about this moment in time, the corporate media is hardly dealing with this very significant 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the Ukraine war, you know, going on during this time, and even when the mainstream media does, it's the same people who 20 years ago um, pushed—beat uh, the drums for war for that Um Invasion. And I'm not just talking about Fox. In the same way, political leaders from Joe Biden to Hillary Clinton, when they were in the Senate, voted for the U.S. invasion that right. President George W. Bush pushed forward. Um, talk about the effects of this disastrous war. We're still, unlike in Afghanistan, 2,500 troops are still there.
1: Well, I think a preliminary question is, why did the United States invade Iraq in the first place? Uh, And there are multiple answers to that question. I think, in many respects, the most important answer is that the Iraq war was envisioned by uh, by both the Bush administration and by proponents of the war, for example, in the media, was envisioned as a way to demonstrate that 9-11 really didn't mean much of anything. That the United States was still the the one and only global superpower, that if we we sent U.S. troops to Iraq, if we beat up Saddam Hussein, overthrew Saddam Hussein, that that would suffice to erase the obvious implications of the 9/11 attacks, meaning the obvious implications being that uh, we were far more vulnerable, far weaker uh, than than the post Cold War claims of being the indispensable nation would seem to suggest. So, so there was an effort to show that 9-11 really didn't matter. The, the, that effort assumed that the United States would win a great, decisive, inexpensive military victory uh, in Iraq. And of course, that didn't come to pass. Here we are 20 years later. Uh, I, th- I think you're right. There really is a, an unwillingness on the part of the establishment to to grapple honestly with the implications of, of the war. And, and in, in a sense, an ironic sense, I think the Ukraine war gives, gives the establishment a convenient opportunity uh, to change the subject. So you're right. We still have U.S. forces uh, in the Middle East. Uh, we 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 persist in the basic structure of national security policy. Spend more money on the military than the next you know ten biggest military powers in the world. Maintain eight hundred plus bases around the world. Maintain these these regional command headquarters like Central Command and NATO and so on. We've we've learned nothing, uh, and that's sad to put it mildly and i think also sets us up for a repetition of that that mistake we're in this showdown a proxy showdown uh, with russia and ukraine we seem to assume uh that uh that that putin's war efforts will consist entirely of conventional weapons despite the fact of course that russia possesses a massive nuclear arsenal so we make these convenient assumptions about the way a war is going to go. And then, of course, we're utterly surprised when the, when the war doesn't follow the required script.
0: And Professor Bacevich, you recently wrote a piece for the American conservative headlined, and the winner is, 20 years after the Iraq invasion, America's humiliation was China's gain. Talk more about this.
1: Well, I think I mean, I think there's no question about it, that uh, over the past 20 years, uh, you know, if you were uh, if it was a matter of stock prices, uh, China's stock prices have gone up, has flourished. And our our stock price has has plummeted. Uh, we have we have frittered away power. We have frittered away influence. Uh, and I wouldn't say that the Iraq war is the one and only explanation for relative American decline, but it's, it has been a very important contributing factor. And and if, if, if the imperative of the moment would include putting a, a floor under that decline, then it seems to me the place to begin is with an honest recounting of the Iraq war, its origins, its conduct, its implications, but there's not a heck of a lot of evidence to suggest that that honest recounting is going to happen.
0: And what do you think of the right— in terms of questioning the Iraq War, um, leading many to believe, you know, sort of sides are switching and shifting. There are those that are deeply questioning the Ukraine War, in the peace movement, um, who are saying negotiation is the only solution here, fearing yeah. uh, that this could lead to a nuclear war. But those on the right, I mean, even in Florida, DeSantis, the governor who could be challenging Trump, saying it's just a territorial dispute, and so many Republicans saying stop funding the war in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, should we as citizens, should we believe that when politicians speak in public, they are expressing a principled perspective or is it more likely that they're actually saying things that reflect uh, domestic political considerations I have to say, and I don't mean to be cynical, I have to say I'm in, I'm in the latter camp. So yeah, so now that, now that Biden owns the Ukraine war, it, we see lots of Republicans sounding dovish, or, or at the very least cautious with regard to the use of force. Uh, I'm not persuaded that the positions staked out today by Democrats and Republicans reflect principled uh, points of view as opposed to what's politically uh, uh, convenient in, in the moment.
0: Going back to Iraq, and in a moment we're going to be speaking with a well-known Iraqi-American, who, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, left Minneapolis um, and said, I don't care if I just have to sweep the streets of my city of Najaf, I'm going to be there with my people, and has now returned. Um, We see that President Putin has been now charged by the International Criminal Court with war crimes. The question of where American officials should stand, um, not 20 years later, but even 10 or before that. President Obama was famous for saying we should always just look forward. But for culpability when it comes to the destruction of this nation, of Iraq, what about George W. Bush, who, yesterday I was saying on the show, just a day after 9-11 when we know 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia was pushing his counterterrorism czar Richard Clark on the issue of Iraq. How can we make that connection? And uh, Richard Clark was saying back to him, there is zero connection. But then what this means, what this led to, should he also be charged with war crimes and should others be in the dock with him?
1: Well, first of all, there's no there's no uh, question in my opinion, that the Iraq war initiated by the United States, a war of choice, uh, was a crime, a really horrid crime. I'm probably easier on President Bush than many other people are. Uh, You know, I view him as a as a a, as an individual, really, of uh, of of limited talent, uh, to put it to put it bluntly. He became president because his last name was Bush, Uh, He was an unimaginative figure uh, and and was utterly unprepared uh, for what happened on September 11th. Uh, And his reaction, uh, which I wouldn't defend, I think is primarily attributable to the uh, associates that he chose to surround himself with. In other words, if I'm looking for bad guys, uh, I don't begin by looking at Bush. I begin with Cheney and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and Condoleezza Rice, people who fancied themselves to be strategic thinkers. They fancied themselves to have a a grasp uh, of of world politics, who believed uh, that American military might was so great uh, that we would sweep aside uh, Saddam Hussein's forces and some vast benefit would result well they miscalculated they were utterly wrong and so when i'm looking for somebody to blame i tend to, i tend to blame those people more than bush not letting bush off the hook he was the commander-in-chief but again i think you know in 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 at least some sense he his it was not his hands that were on the controls
0: um if Bush was so untalented, why couldn't the largest anti-war movement in the world stop him? And it's not only in the United States. I mean, remember February 15, 2003. Millions of people took to the streets of the world to stop the US invasion of Iraq.
1: Well, I don't think I don't think Bush or anybody in the Bush administration cared about world opinion. I mean, they, they cared about whether or not they were going to be able to line up certain allies like Great Britain to support the war in that they succeeded. No shame on Tony Blair. But I don't think world opinion factored in a large sense uh, in the inner circles of, of Washington, D.C. But but your larger question is because I remember those. I happened to be in in in, in New York City, in Manhattan. On the day of the, uh, was it February? I think fifteenth. February fifteenth, two thousand three. Moving, massive, astonishing, and I think had zero political impact. Why? Well, I think that says something about our democracy. Uh, that uh, you know, elites uh, tend to uh, bow toward you know the will of the people, uh, but then when they sit around the table. Uh, And they make decisions, decisions related to war and peace. I don't think that they think very seriously about, well, you know, what do the folks back in Indiana think? Uh, Their their calculation uh, is shaped by considerations of power. And again, I would say with regard to the the Bush administration in 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 2003, when the war began, uh, radically defective uh, understanding of the war understanding of ourselves, uh, understanding of the potential of American military power. So our leadership, elected and appointed, was stupid. The people actually, I think, had a better grasp of of the dangers that we were undertaking when we went to war with Iraq.
0: Well, Andrew Basevich, I want to thank you so much for joining us, chair of the board and co-founder of the anti-war think tank Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, retired colonel, Vietnam War veteran, professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University, his latest book on shedding an obsolete past, bidding farewell to the American century. He's speaking to us from Gordo, Florida. We'll link to your latest piece in the Boston Globe headline, The Self-Deceived Deceivers." of war. Coming up, we continue with our week-long 20th anniversary of the Iraq War special by going to Minneapolis to speak with Sami Razuli, a beloved Iraqi-American restaurateur in Minneapolis who moved back to Iraq after the U.S. invasion to be in his home country, where he founded Muslim Peacemaker Team. Now he's back. Stay with us. I will return by Narsi, Yo Yo Ma, and Mashru Layla. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to look back at the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we're joined by Sami Razuli, who we've spoken to numerous times over the past 20 years. He was an Iraqi native who immigrated to the United States over 35 years ago. He became a successful restaurateur and beloved member of the community in Minneapolis. After the U.S. invasion of Iraq, his home country, in 2003, he moved back to Iraq, where he founded Muslim peacemakers. In a moment, Sami will join us live from Minneapolis. But first, I want to go back to 2004— where Sami appeared on Democracy Now! to discuss his plan to move back to Iraq, in the midst of the U.S. war.
2: I would do anything, anything. Probably I'll start cleaning the streets where my sister lives and get those kids who like to listen to their uncle to come and help me, and probably we do a lot of things and get the people uh, uh, influenced by rebuilding their country again.
0: That was Sami Rizuli um, in 2004 when I visited him in Minneapolis. In 2008, I interviewed Sami during the Republican National Convention in St. Paul. Uh, Sami was back from Iraq at that point. He criticized then vice presidential nominee Joe Biden's proposal to partition Iraq.
2: As you and the audience, the viewers, and many Iraqis uh, still remember uh, Mr. Biden when he introduced the bill to the Congress last year to partition Iraq. Now he came back on the ticket. So that was not a surprise for me at least. Because the surge has accomplished one of its objectives that Iraq is ready to be partitioned by expelling or displacing more than five million Iraqis within the country out and outside of the country.
0: You know, that was five days after um, I was arrested in St. Paul as we were covering a protest, along with my Democracy Now! colleagues, Sharif Abdel and Nicole Salazar. The police went after us, them for filming, and me for asking for them to be released. Well, in 2011, Democracy Now! spoke to Sami again on the phone from his home at that point in Najaf, Iraq. The interview took place just after President Obama declared an end to the war in Iraq.
3: In terms of destroying Iraq, uh, it's really uh, mission accomplished. Uh, the healthcare system has been really destroyed. Uh, as you mentioned, the uh, infrastructure uh, as a total uh, uh, catastrophe that began not only since 2003, and actually it's more than 20 years since uh, 1991. Uh, you know, the, uh, we should not forget the um, effect of the sanction before the invasion. The Iraqi people uh, have suffered a lot, and many of them uh, have
1: died.
0: While President Obama pledged to remove all troops from Iraq by the end of 2011, today, more than a decade later, there are still more than 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq. And violence has continued in Iraq as well. In 2020, in just one example, a bomb destroyed the American Institute for English in Najaf, Iraq, the school that was founded by our guest, Sami Razuli. At the time of the bombing, Sami was visiting the United States. Since then, he's remained here with his family, which was finally reunited at the end of last year, his wife and son returning to be with him and their kids. He's now working on starting a new organization called the American Iraqi Peace Initiative. Sammy Rizzulli, it's great to have you back with us, as I talk to you from New York, and you're sitting in a studio in Minneapolis. Uh, It's amazing to go back on that journey. As we met you in Minneapolis, the anti-war movement so warmly supported you, um, the whole community at your restaurant in Minneapolis. But then you said, I'm closing it all up, and I don't care if I have to just sweep the streets of Najaf. I'm going to improve my country in any small way I can, as the U.S. bombs were falling. Take us on that journey 20 years later and how you ended up back in the United States. But talk about that first decision you made from your comfortable abode in Minneapolis to say, I'm going back to Iraq.
3: Hello, Amy. Thank you for having me, and thank you for— reviewing our past meetings. It has been a while since we met. Anyway, I'm back now. And regarding your question, I always tell my uh, listeners that—and friends, of course—that Sammy and Sam and the fish has something in common, that they go upstream. But they also have no in common that uh, Salmon doesn't come back, but Sammy keeps coming back because my good friend uh, Jeremy Eggers uh, here from Minneapolis said, Sammy, remember you always wanted to build a bridge for peace between the two countries, your country of birth and your country of choice. So, remember that bridge has two ends. You have to maintain both ends. That meant to come back again and go back. So, wherever I go, that's my home, and I'm privileged to have that. As you mentioned, uh, eventually I got reunited with my wife and my stepson. Uh, My family and I survived. My dreams and school has been destroyed in Najaf back in September 2020. After killing uh, General, the Iranian General Soleimani by Mr. Trump. Um,
0: At the Iraq airport. Well,
3: uh, correct in uh, in Baghdad Baghdad airport. Yes. Well, it looks like uh, my wife, my kids and I are safe now here. But the war in Iraq 20 years ago have left scars and visible legacy. And this is the babies, the babies in Fallujah and Najaf and Basra. And uh, the rise of the incidence of cancer, if we speak in general, four folds went up. But among the kids, 12 times went up. And that's catastrophic. The gruesome uh, deformality of newborn babies, whether in Najaf or in Fallujah, keeps happening as a witness for the crimes committed against peaceful nation in 2003. And that brings the question, how are we going to deal with that? I always say a just compensation. A just compensation— to respect that nation and leave that nation alone. That nation is rich in its resources, but unfortunately the Bush's administration's representative by Paul Bremer assigned people that incompetent, they have nothing to do with leading a country such a country called the cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia. Uh, They are just selling each part of the country out to others. And we, as the people of Iraq, living in an insecure country—and actually, it's Net state, a law, lossless state. So uh, there is no security, there is no uh, respected economic system, social system, health system, education system. And when I say just compensation, I mean to build a new culture here that backyard of the rest of the world, the United States of America, the new culture that, based on justice and peace, that deal with, for example, local, domestic, uh, severely affected all of us—it's a school mass shooting since Columbine and— April 20th 1999 we haven't done yet anything to prevent that because since that shooting in 1999 up to date there are there are about 366 school mass shootings happened already and those disturbed kids that receiving very bad education system by their political leaders, I should emphasize, because, at school, they teach them how to be kind and nice to their neighbors, to their friends, and teach them not to be racist against any colors or other people that they meet, to be diversified. But, again, they are told the same thing by their parents.
0: I wanted to interrupt for one second, because you're making an extremely interesting point as you talk about, you know, this country being really the only place in the world that has this level of mass shootings day after day. And you go back to Columbine. As you said, Columbine was April 20th, 1999, and I'll never forget. President Clinton's comments at the time—what was it, four—three days later that the U.S.-backed NATO forces, for example, bombed RTS, the radio television studio, uh, in Belgrade, Serbia, and we saw the body parts of makeup artists and technicians being taken out of this civilian structure. That was just one example. But— the Columbine happening in the midst of the bombing of Yugoslavia, and President Clinton saying, how do we teach our children that violence is not the answer to resolving conflict? Um, and the irony of this, uh, with the backdrop of war, then Yugoslavia—in your case, we're talking about Iraq, and now talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine—
3: right i mean kids the adolescents i mean the the they were like 12 years old uh, or 17 years old the perpetrators uh those kids and they they come as a challenge for their surrounding world they would like to make some changes uh, in this stage of age so uh to tell them at school and and at home uh, violence is bad and we should not do it, but yet we are doing it by our political leaders in Iraq and Syria uh, and other places. And we tell them that's good, but the violence, for example, or attacking uh, Ukraine today is not OK. So we are—what we're doing, we are contributing to disturb their minds, their psyche. And eventually, they end up with the conclusion that uh, uh, human life has no value, whether uh, it's their friends, their classmates, or uh, their enemies, uh, and, and bullying uh, their uh, our classmates. If they are bigger uh, uh, or stronger, it just they seen it when the U.S. as a, uh, a superpower country goes and march in Iraq uh, with no reason, and and destroy the country and come back and go after that to Syria, destroy it to Libya, and it, the the saga will continue. So that should be ended and. Uh, as i said uh, a new culture uh, of peace and justice should uh, lead our mind and hearts not only at home and school but also in the Pentagon uh, uh, and and the White House and the Congress. Uh, Sami, so one, um, uh, when... I,
0: I wanted yeah. to ask you about 2015. President Trump was running. Uh, Donald Trump was running for president on a fiercely anti-Muslim platform. We know, you know, right after he came into office, the Muslim ban, etc. But you invited him to Iraq um, as part of a cultural exchange program for Muslim peacemaker team. If you can talk about establishing the Muslim peacemakers, working with Christian peacemakers in the anti-war movement, and why you wanted Trump to come to Iraq.
3: Well— Amy, you remember when we met in Minneapolis back, I think, in 2004, uh, you visited uh, Minneapolis, and uh, you interviewed me, and you asked uh, me—you brought uh, part of that meeting uh, uh, earlier in the show. So, uh, I told you I am going with no clue what I'm going to do, but at least I'm going to go and sweep. Uh, The uh, 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 sister—my sister, where she lives, the house and—or the uh, street where she lives in. So, uh, accidentally, with no previous plans, I met the Christian peacemaker teams there, and they were a, a great guidance for me to establish the Muslim peacemaker teams. So, I'm still thankful for them to create all the uh, uh, roots and, and, and the initial movement that uh, Muslim peacemaker teams follow their uh, footsteps to uh, work together in many projects. So, one of them, when uh, uh, Mr. Biden— Banned Muslim countries, among them Iraq, not to enter uh, the US, uh, then excluded Iraq, I remember. But still, what I did uh, with Somalia, because it was uh, uh, also excluded, so I flew to Somalia to uh, bring Somalia and Iraq together, and we signed an agreement with uh, the authority in Bosaso—and that's in Pointland uh, area, uh, way in the north—to make Najaf and Bosaso sister cities, since, since both of them are sister cities of Minneapolis. So the, we built uh, that triangle as a reaction for Mr. Trump. But at the same time, I sent uh, a letter inviting Mr. Trump to come and learn about the facts, how a Muslim— uh, Family operates and how the Muslim uh, family conduct its business with the neighbors, with the kids, with the uh, school teachers, and with their guest. Him, uh, if he come and stay with us at home to watch us rather than to listen to the mainstream media, because you know the mainstream media in the U.S. they uh, uh, picture the Muslims as terrorists. And the mainstream media in the Middle East, they uh, picture uh, the uh, European and uh, the uh, Western among them, the Americans, as infidels. So here comes the duty of Muslim peacemaker teams, when uh, the Muslim peacemaker teams bring both together, the infidel and the terrorist, halfway, have them sit in a round table, look in the eyes break that piece of bread, share it, and they find out all that nonsense of terrorism or infidels has no values, but they are nothing but brothers and sisters in humanity. And they should pursue this concept, uh, that peaceful concept, to respect each other and uh, uh, share what they have together.
0: SAMI I want to thank you so much for being with us, beloved Iraqi-American restaurateur in Minneapolis, who moved back to Iraq after the U.S. invasion, founded the Muslim Peacemaker Team, and now is back in Minneapolis uh, 20 years later. Um, someday soon, I hope to come to Minneapolis and share a meal with you, break bread with you and your community. Thank you so much, Sami. Uh, that does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.